It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me today is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panelists today, uh, some regulars, Jamie Buffalino, who is a staff writer for the East Hampton Star. Hey, Jamie. Hey, how are you? Good to have you. Joe Workmeister, an editor up at the Times Review Media Group. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Good to be here. And Denise Civiletti, uh, editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. So this weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Uh, I think all of our papers addressed it um, with articles this week. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm curious, the show's behind the headlines, and I'm curious about people's personal memories from that day. Denise, what, what do you remember about September 11th? You know, apart from um, it, the initial phone, you know, everybody has the same recollection. It seems like everything you read is like, you know, they get a phone call, turn on the TV. That's exactly what happened to me. I got a phone call from our electrician of all people who was supposed to be coming that day. He said, do you have the TV on? Turn on the TV. And that I did just before the second plane hit the, the towers. And um, so there's that. And then just being completely terrified. I mean, I had two small children and um, my Peter, my husband, was on his way into the city um, I didn't know where he was. I had no way. I, 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 either he didn't have a cell phone yet, I don't recall, or they were just not functional and I couldn't reach him. And then I had um, two cousins who worked right there. One was in uh, World, World Tra- Seven World Trade Center and the other, I thought, was in the Twin Towers. But unbeknownst to me, his company had moved a, a few blocks away. And um, I had we, nobody heard from them like for a long time that day. And I was, I was just being frantic. I packed up my kids and I, I went to my mother's because, you know, that's what you do. Yeah, the and, panic of that day is just, yeah. is what I remember the most. Joe, you were actually not, you're, you're a little younger than us. You were actually not yet a journalist, but uh, you were in high school at the time, right? How, how did you react to it? Right, yeah, I was, a, I was a senior in high school. So, you know, I can, remember the specific moment first hearing it being it was a fourth period i had an early lunch i remember that that year so it was fourth period and i had lunch and i was on the line and waiting to get food and heard that a plane had hit the twin towers and um i think like a lot of people assumed that it was you know some small you know couple passenger yeah. plane went off line somehow hit the plane you know wow that's tragic but did not grasp the, the uh you know the full reality of what was happening um i think until um i went to my next class and then the teacher there kind of filled us in and, and i can i could specifically remember him saying that he was i think he was reading something and you know read aloud that that at its peak the twin towers could hold as many as fifty thousand people mm-hmm. and and i think around that yeah. moment was when the towers had come down shortly uh, right around then and just in that for and then all of a sudden it was like oh my god like as many as fifty thousand people might have just died um you know obviously not realizing how many people got out or how many people were there and um 
demonstrates so was, how much was, worse it could have been. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then I just remember it being surreal the rest of the school day, um, going from class to class. And, and it was, it was, it was different where some teachers kind of just canceled what was going on. And we just kind of like talked about what was happening. And then I remember there was one math teacher who just kind of went on with the lesson and it was, it was kind of hard to figure out what was, uh, what was you know what was going on with math at the time but yeah um, but then you know so i didn't see you know so many other people just immediately got the tv on and we're kind of seeing what was happening but i didn't see the images of the, the of the planes hidden and the towers falling until i got home from school so we were talking like you know 130 maybe you know 145 in the afternoon um you know, oh, that's so, so several hours after the fact, because, you know, this, you know, obviously there was no, um, I, you know, I couldn't just you know, flip open my phone and, and see. And, um, you know, there were no, no TVs in the classroom to kind of just easily throw on the news or something like that. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a kind of a unique perspective, I guess, uh, kind of experiencing it that way. I wonder if it was worse getting it all at once uh, in the afternoon or or was it worse seeing it unfold in real time? I, I'm, I'm not sure. That's kind of an unanswerable question. Jamie, um, where were you and what do you remember about that day? Uh, well, I was living in the city at that time. I was in, living in the West Village and uh, I had seen the news footage um, when the second plane hit live. And uh, from Hudson Street, all the way down, you could actually see the Twin Towers. So yeah. everyone in the neighborhood uh, kind of gravitated and just watched. But I was working at Entertainment Weekly at the time and Tuesday was our closing day. So, I mean, in retrospect, it seems crazy, but I was like torn between like this massive event and the fact that I needed to go to work. So I jumped on the subway. Well, it was probably one of the last running that day and uh, went to Midtown. And then, you know, it was just kind of a blur of uh, a day, you know, and then by the time I got home, there was like, I had to walk all the way home um, because there were no cars or taxis or anything. And then I had to show ID to get below 14th Street because I had cordon that off. Mm. It was like, you know, and like you, Denise was saying, all the phones were shot. So you couldn't really, like, even on a landline, I couldn't get through to, like, let people know or, you know, contact people. So it was uh, crazy. That's something. Bill, you were already at the press, right? And, and I, I was. Yeah. I, yeah. So <clears throat> I was I was actually living um, in the apartment above the Western office in, in West Hampton Beach. And I remember watching, I was watching today's show and, um, and, and so I remember Matt Lauer announcing that a small plane had hit the world trade center. And I went downstairs into the office and I feel guilty about it now, but you know, we didn't know any better. We were joking around about it a little bit that this small plane had hit the towers and, and then, um, um, we had a radio on down there and we started to hear, you know, the other stuff that was going on, that it was, you know, that it was the, you know, the attack and passenger jets and the second tower got hit and, and, and we're coming down and, and the Pentagon. And we had gotten a note from um, uh, Peconic Bay Medical Center, which uh, at the time, I think, was still Central Suffolk Hospital, that um, that they were going to they were setting up their emergency room. They were expecting hundreds of um, down, mass, down, mass down, 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 down level um, survivors and, you know, and injured. And, and so I went 
running up there with my camera and um, you know, and it, and it was, it was a frenzy outside the emergency room in the back. There was a, you know, a triage doctor and they were, and doctors and nurses and, you know, a couple dozen of them and they're, they're setting stuff up outside. And I took a couple of pictures and let them know that I was there and they were cool about it and all that. And, and then it just, it, you know, it was this, this waiting game. And I sat in the parking lot for, you know, minutes turned into, into, uh, into hours, a couple hours. And then they just started packing, packing up. And, you know, I went to talk to them and the realization was there just weren't any injured survivors that were, were coming out. And I think, you know, as, as, you know, as, as others had, had said, you didn't know how many people were killed or how many were, you know, injured or whatever, but it wasn't a good feeling like, you know, like people had escaped and, and weren't injured that, you know, the feeling was that people were in the building that, you know, had died and weren't, um, weren't coming out, um, yeah. which was, which harsh. Um, so then on my way back to West Hampton beach, um, they had, uh, they had shut down the entrance to Gabreski airport. So I stopped to take some pictures there and there were, I think it was state troopers, um, or maybe it was county cops. I'm not sure. So I start taking some pictures and they just swarmed me. They didn't, luckily I had my press pass and, you know, and, and they let me take a couple of pictures and, and go. Um, but it was, I mean, just really heightened, heightened alert. And um, that was a little scary for, for a reporter. And, I don't think I've ever heard that story. Yeah. And then, and then um, back to Jamie's point, it was a Tuesday afternoon, which was our deadline. And, I had spent all day, you know, in, in Riverhead and at Gabreski and, and had to come back and write six or seven stories about town board and planning board. Oh. And it was so surreal. I mean, and it's like, you know, trying trying not to watch the TV as I'm as I'm writing that stuff overnight um, and just trying to get that stuff in because, you know, I mean, we're we're the newspaper and we obviously had the 9-11 coverage, but we had to have our our normal coverage, too. So it was the drudgery of writing that stuff and, and this big shock of, of what was going on. And our editor at the time was out of town. <laughs> yeah, so that was me. Little... The, the irony being I was on vacation. That was one of the last days of my vacation. And I spent it in visiting family back in Western Pennsylvania. And ironically, it was only about 50 miles away from Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was home with my with my my wife and my mother-in-law watching television and seeing the whole thing unfold and the two things that that strike me are the just i mean there's no other way to describe it but terror of that day because you didn't know when it was going to end it just felt like it was just wave after wave after wave and the second thing was just the chaos of the of that day in the next couple of days as you know in in 2001 we didn't have quite the uh internet infrastructure that we do now. Uh, I remember scrambling to my brother's house to try and pitch in how I could from Pennsylvania to try and help with the paper that week. I remember I wrote an editorial that I'm, you know, a lot of people look back on their writings at key moments and are really proud of what they said. I'm not sure my editorial that week was anything particularly special, but I do remember we, we did suggest that the rebuilt when they rebuild at the site, it should be called the Freedom Tower. So we got that in early uh, and I feel sort of vindicated that that happened. But uh, I just remember the chaos of it all. It just it really felt like it's 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 actually a segue into what we're going through right now, which I think is another cataclysmic event like that. But it's more of a slow rolling 
cataclysm that we're experiencing with with COVID, but it's sort of the same thing. I think I think we're all just sort of looking around, going, "When is it going to get back to normal?" Um, and what is normal? You know, the, the difference being, and I think you know, early on in COVID, and I don't want to be super critical, but early on in COVID everybody came together and it was that same feeling after 9-11 you know nobody disagreed there were no there were no debates there was no politics it was all you know we were we're the united states we're americans we're going to get through this we're going to you know we're going to find justice and everybody pulled together everybody was nice and polite and you know and 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 all that and i think you felt a little of that the first couple months of covid and then covid um, descended in, into the politics that, that it is now with, with, you know, people who, you know, wanted wanted uh, the economy to, economy to open up early. And now the people who don't want to get vaccines and and the people that don't want to wear masks and, and the opposite and the people getting getting mad at those people. And it's just turned into this wild political debate that that I think, you know, the, the nation has kind of fallen into that over over the last 20 years. It would be nice to see that that pulling together again. Yeah, Denise, the unity that came in the the weeks and months after September 11th, it does seem 100 miles away, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure it sure does. Um, and I, you know, I was I didn't get to finish it, but uh, I listened to the New York Times Daily podcast. Um, I, I, I love had. that podcast. Yeah, yeah and um, the subject this morning was how in some oh, was, was September 11th, and how in some ways. September 11th was the beginning of um, what the reality that we're living in today when it comes to um, alternate facts and conspiracy theories and the political fracturing that uh, that we that we live with. Um, it's so a lot of seeds that we're, we're yeah. harvesting now, I think. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic that it started out in this very kind of, you know, all for one and one for all kind of thing. And then, you know, ended up where it ended up. Um, so I, you know, there were so many layers to this. I mean, uh, that, and so many ramifications of that day, for, you know, the Patriot Act, for instance, and what that uh, did. Um, but just, I, I remember being so like, I was so upset and frantic and frightened. And by the same token, trying to protect my kids from, exposure to what was going on because they were like eight and nine at the time old mm. enough to you know and trying to not let them see me like falling apart generally generally speaking um so that was that was very tricky and i think back to what teachers had to go through in the aftermath of that and in some ways it's like kind of what they're dealing with today how do you protect the children from not only their health but their mental health and then the, the discord that surrounds the the whole COVID crisis, the whole political discord, the masks and the vaccines, and you know the the constant arguments, um, you know that's that's a that's a heavy lift for teachers and um, and parents as well. Jamie, I'm curious. You you lived in the city. How long did it take to start to feel like the city emerged from just the the absolute you know, shock of it all. How long, how long did it take? 
Well, I mean, it's hard for me to think back. And I, I mean, remember right afterwards, it was like, this is, there was all these think pieces about this is the death of irony. And like, uh, there's no, like, especially because I was working in entertainment at that time, everyone thought that nobody wanted anything frivolous anymore. But at the same time, you know, Americans bounce back almost too quickly sometimes. And I remember, you know, I think that might have been like at the height of Sex in the City. And I remember thinking people bounce back too fast, some segment of it where it was like going back. And even I think President Bush encouraged everybody to go shopping and stuff like that. And uh, you know, but I mean, overall, I just remember that first week, just like, you know, sobbing, reading the paper all the time. And I, I, one of the most heart-wrenching things was just, you know, the doctors, I used to live next to what was St. Vincent's Hospital, doctors like waiting to receive whoever would come and nobody came because like, there were no just injured after the initial day. It was all just recovery basically. So, I mean, it's, I, I can't, you know, think back to exactly. I mean, obviously it took a while, but in in kind of classic New York fashion, um, people went back to like going out to dinner kind of quickly, I think, as I recall. Yeah, and still we still all said 20 years later, I still think we're feeling the echoes of it, no question. I think all of our publications, both digitally and, and in print, uh, had stories about uh, the 20 years since 9-11, and I think there were some pretty remarkable stories told across the board. So I encourage people to go out and look for those in all of our publications. I'd like to move the conversation to the to the present crisis and, and COVID. And Jamie, you wrote a little bit this week about booster shots. And obviously, in the last couple of days, we've had some developments um, on the vaccine front with President Biden uh, saying that he's going to require all federal employees and anybody who's contractor contract contracting with the federal government and plus any uh, private industries, uh, any businesses with over 100 employees uh, will need to to require the vaccines. But this, this debate about booster shots, I think, is one of the more fascinating things that's in front of us right now. It's and it's, it's some of the debate is whether or not the focus should instead beyond trying to get those shots to people who haven't gotten any shots. And that's clearly what this new policy is about. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like Bill was saying, there was there is a divide on vaccines. On one end, it's people who are like refusing to get them. And on the other, it's like people who want as many as possible. And, uh, you know, because people are worried about it, you're running out, the effectiveness running out. Um, and also, I mean, let alone just our country, the rest of the world, there are some countries that have no vaccines at all. So whatever our stockpile is, if we're using it for a third vaccine when other people haven't even got their first one it becomes a question of you know what's the right policy but so right now the way it stands is people who are who have immune disorders uh i talked to a bunch of doctors this week and they recommended only people with immune disorders get it because the fda still has not fully approved it for for uh for as a booster, they're meeting on the 17th, whatever day that is, I've lost track, but um, to discuss whether approval is coming for the general population, um, you know, but as one doctor, her quote was, uh, you know, 
People are getting them, just saying, you know, I do have, because you only have to self-attest. So people are getting them, just saying I have immune disorder and nobody's questioning it. But as a, the doctor I talked to said, you know, lying is never really a great idea when it comes to healthcare. Um, and, the, you know, the chances are it's going to be fine. And I'm sure, you know, people have gotten them and we haven't heard of any results. But still, I think it makes sense to wait for the FDA and the CDC to fully sign off on it. Did he I speak? I, I just want to say I'm I am uh, bracing for the reaction to this mandate yeah. because I mean the reaction to the mandate for healthcare workers has been um, really really harsh. I mean there was a protest over the weekend here in Riverhead outside of the Conic Bay Medical Center um, and. Um, a couple hundred people showed up. They uh, assembled all around the traffic circle and um, they were very animated to say the least. I mean, um, it wasn't clear how many people were from Peconic, were healthcare workers at Peconic Bay Medical Center. I met and talked with uh, a handful of them. Uh, there were healthcare workers from other places. And then there were people who had healthcare workers in their families and just people who hate the idea of being mandated to take a, a vaccine. And I, if that's kind of like a microcosm of what we're in store for. Those same same lines, um, State Assemblyman Fred Thiel and, and State Senator Anthony Palumbo yeah. this week wrote a letter to the governor um, um, saying that this mandate could could result in in the hospitals and healthcare facilities being short staffed by as much as twenty to thirty percent, which I think might be an overestimate, but but uh, healthcare workers who facing the mandate um, might leave their jobs, um, and and you're gonna you know so if you're talking about every every industry in the country with over a hundred employees, if you if you do the same thing, then then you know then then what does that do for um, for the economy? It's really interesting. The difference is, I think that, that at least for now, uh, non-healthcare employees can, uh, under this new uh, mandate, if I understand it correctly, uh, can test out. Okay. But I think the healthcare workers don't have that option, and it's also not clear whether they. We we didn't get a straight answer. We're trying to work on this, but we didn't get a straight answer from the health, the state health department about whether that. Um, if the, if hospitals are required to uh, terminate the employment of, of folks who uh, refuse, um, you know, we got the kind of a typical statement that doesn't really answer your question. Um, and required being the key word there, because I yeah. don't think any of the hospitals right now would voluntarily terminate any employees because I think every, everybody is needed right now on those medical staffs. And, and um, that's part of the point is that the crisis could be the loss of staff numbers. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, and I, we couldn't get that, well, at least not yet. We haven't succeeded in getting the hospitals to respond to uh, questions about whether, you know, this would do what um, the Senator and Assemblyman um, are, are saying. So we're uh, waiting. And, and anecdotally, we had spoken to some um, healthcare workers at Southampton Hospital a few weeks ago, who who I think I don't think we identified at the time, um, who who had said absolutely that you know if there was a mandate that that they would leave, um, you know. And, and to Joe's point, I mean, I think you know the hospitals are in a tough position because the unions, the the, the mm -hmm. workers' unions, 
while while they've said they're in favor of the vaccinations are are opposed to to a mandate and the hospitals certainly have to work with with the unions so maybe it's helpful for them you know if when when the state comes down with the mandate and says you know take takes that choice away it's just like it's like the you know the school um, mask debate right now where, you know, all the different schools were, were, were charged with setting up their own policies and dealing with parents who were opposed to the masks and all that. And the state came down and just took that choice away and said masks are required. So I think maybe it's got to come from the top down in vaccines you, and masks. Do you think there's kind of a general theme of what the, these some of these healthcare workers who don't want the vaccine are sort of feeling and why they're sort of, I mean, one would assume that the people in the healthcare field would um, you know, be open to understanding that a vaccine is safe and effective and works. And so, well, you know, I, I, I mean, they're healthcare workers, but they're people too. And I think the arguments yeah. are, are the same that, that all the other, I don't want to call them anti-vaxxers because I think that has a different connotation, but all the other people who are reluctant to get the vaccine vaccine feel that that maybe there hadn't been enough testing or they were unsure about this or unsure about that, which I, I think the science has proven not to be true. Um, but you, you still have that um, you, you have that feeling, you have that opinion. You know, Joe, I, you I, I, sorry. I, I, just I'm sorry, Denise, I just want to make the point, though, that, that I think Joe raises an interesting point we should at least acknowledge. I think all of us have done a lot of heavy lifting to try and address the vaccine hesitant to, to try and encourage them to get vaccines. But I have to say it in knowing that there is, as you said, Bill, I think healthcare workers are people too. And I think the, the number of the percentage of healthcare workers who aren't getting vaccines is about the same as the general population. But I think the fact that there are sizable numbers of healthcare workers not getting the vaccine, it feeds that vaccine hesitancy in that community, because there's, I think there's this feeling that if medical professionals are hesitant, there must be a good reason. And and quite frankly, I'm not sure that's true. It seems like uh, it's very possible that that the same misinformation uh, that's, that's led to a lot of the hesitancy has, has just gotten to some of the healthcare professionals too. Yeah, this goes back to what Denise was saying about kind of misinformation. There's been a lot of misinformation about the vaccine. There's a lot of really ardent anti-vaccine groups that have caused a lot of question uh, about uh, the vaccines. But in fact, you know, vaccines have some of the most strict clinical trials of any, um, you know, any scientific study. So. You know, it's it's exasperating because it's like the only way we're going to get out of this is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But I mean, I do agree, like people have their reasons for not getting them. But um, the reality is it affects all of us, you know, especially if you work in a healthcare environment. Yeah. I heard a, a wide variety of um, reasons why they didn't want to get vaccinated, why they were opposed to the mandate on Saturday. Um, and again, they're not they were not all healthcare workers. Um, everything from it's not really a vaccine to it wasn't properly tested to we survived the last 18 months dealing with sick people without a vaccine. Why do we need a vaccine now? Mm. And, um, you know, so there was a lot of that. But I would also just point out that I have heard or anecdotally, I haven't seen data or anything, but from Northwell officials at Peconic Bay that um, the there's a, a very real difference in the percentage of doctors who've taken the vaccine 
versus nurses and other healthcare workers that doctors, uh, overwhelming majority of doctors have gotten the vaccine. I mean, they're vaccinated. And I think that's kind of interesting. That is very interesting. You know, it is true. Other- I mean, you, you have a lot of people that work in healthcare that, you know, necessarily haven't gone to medical right. school or, or that Absolutely. level of medical or are nurses even, yes. Right. Yes. You know, I brought it up at a show a couple of weeks ago, or last week or the week yeah. before, I think, too. And I've had family members who are who have been in the healthcare industry, not not doctors or nurses. But I think there's there's a, a just a prevalent attitude. And, and I'm not, you know, nothing wrong with this, but because they're around healthcare all the time, that's their job. So they sometimes just think they know better. And, you know, and or or they've seen horror stories that, you know, that would lead them to, you know, to 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 question the vaccine, I guess. But my concern is that the residual effect of that is to just fuel the, the hesitancy. And I, and I worry about that. I also have to point out um, just before we move on that we can, we're going to have another fight coming up very soon uh, when the vaccine is likely to be approved for 12, you know, for kids under 12. And we're going to have a whole new argument about this and it's going to start all over again. And Jamie, that'll be right around the time that booster shots will be in a conversation and there'll be a new demand for vaccines. It's, uh, you know, we're entering a a new phase of of this crisis that's going to be kind of fascinating to watch. And I don't think we have any clear lines drawn uh, yet about how it may turn out. So it'll be something to watch. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, Our panelists today are Jamie Buffalino, who is a staff writer at the East Hampton Star, Joe Workmeister, an editor at the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti, who's uh, the editor at Riverhead Local. Um, So let's move on. Um, Joe, I want to talk about a court case this week. There were some charges filed um, in an overdose case uh, that, that affected um, your region up on the North Fork. Uh, but this has some real ramifications because it's sort of the, uh, the beginning of a, of a new way of enforcing laws uh, on drug dealers after there are overdose deaths, right? Right. So last, last month, there was the, uh, um, a string of uh, overdose, fatal overdoses on the North Fork where six people died and, and a few more uh, overdose who survived. And um, pretty quickly afterward, uh, police arrested two men and, and charged them in connection with that. And, and the one uh, one person from, from Greenport, who was the person who allegedly directly sold um, the drugs to these people, um, uh, was indicted by a grand jury on upgraded charges last week and was in court Friday to face two manslaughter charges. And so the second degree manslaughter right now is uh, basically the the top charge that um, the, the district attorney can bring against someone for selling drugs in an overdose case where uh, the person dies. And so that's what they're trying to do here. And while I believe they, 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 think he's responsible for selling drugs to everyone who overdosed uh, for, for as of now, the manslaughter charges are only related to two specific um, people who died. And as they outlined in court, um, they're basically using um, phone records to link um, him to, to those two people. And they, they showed a text message that he had gotten from someone um, basically kind of warning saying that, you know, this, that I guess they had, tried the cocaine and was, they were feeling um, kind of fuzzy or, or something like that was the word they used and um, couldn't see straight. And um, 
And so basically they're saying that at that point, he knew that these drugs um, were, were potentially laced with something deadly and, and should have taken action to either you know stop selling or at least warn the people who had and, and who then were he just can- buying he continued to sell it after that, according to the authorities. Right. So, right? The, so the two people who who got it directly after that text message are the ones that they're now trying to link to the manslaughter charge. Uh-huh. Um, and and so, yeah, it's you know it's not it's not easy to you know to, to prove a manslaughter charge in a case like this. You know, they, they kind of have to be able to prove that negligence of knowing that you know that that the, the person knew. The, the batch of drugs they had were, were you know, were tainted with something you know, deadlier. You know, simply selling drugs to someone and then they overdose in itself is not um, um, able to be a manslaughter charge. This is something that's just trying to change through les- legislation that they talked about last week, too, with this death by dealer legislation. Um, uh, so, you know, we'll see if that ever um, uh, comes to play. But what's also interesting, too, is there's so the, the, the Greenport man was charged for selling, but then they had arrested somebody else from Smithtown as the alleged supplier of drugs. And so he was arrested too. Now they haven't actually charged him with anything kind of directly linking him to this case. And it's kind of up in the air right now, what will happen with him. And if the prosecutors can actually prove that he was really um, uh, responsible in some way, they arrested him on some drug charges when they, they, um, executed a search warrant at his house, found some drugs, some drug paraphernalia and arrested him on charges for that. But those charges don't directly link him to this, um, to these overdoses. And I talked to his attorney again yesterday who said, you know, again, he doesn't believe there's any evidence linking him directly to this, to these overdose cases. And, uh, you know, he maintains that uh, he, he was not, uh, you know, responsible for that as well. So, so there's no manslaughter charges that, that he's facing yet. And, um, you know, talking to his attorney, he doesn't think that there there will be. And he actually, um, the the bail had been actually pretty pretty high in the case and his in his case uh, for you know what were basically a couple of misdemeanor charges. And um, the attorney went to was able to appeal it and got that reduced. And um, he he is out on on bond now. He got that reduced uh, pretty significantly, which uh, sort of indicates that maybe the case isn't quite as uh, strong as the prosecutors initially indicated. Is there, Interesting. Any, is there any indication as to who or when or at what point in the process the, the fentanyl was was mixed with the with the cocaine? It just seems and I'm certainly not making charges against anybody here specifically, but the overdoses were centered around the one area, Greenport. So it would it would seem that the police would want to look into into that and, and, and whether whether it was at that level that, you know, that, that, that the fentanyl was added. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, yeah, that's you know, kind of one of the key questions. When did the, this fentanyl get mixed with the cocaine? And um, I believe I asked the, the district attorney that question specifically. And, and I can't remember if he said they, they just didn't know or they weren't ready to kind of explain that part yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we don't have a clear answer of that yet. Um, but yeah, that, you know, I think that's kind of, what's hanging over this, you know, did this guy from Greenport know that there was anything mixed with that? Did he do it himself or did that come up at a different point when he got it? Um, Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we we don't really know that. And, you know, you would assume that, you know, the person selling drugs, um, you know, kind of on the street doesn't want the person that they potentially deal with, you know, on, on maybe a frequent basis to be overdosing and dying. Right. I mean, you want the person selling drugs wants to keep that going. Right. So, 
Denise, what I find interesting here, this is really uh, the law evolving uh, in real time, right? And I think fentanyl probably is driving a lot of it because I think in the past it was a, it was an easy line to draw where you say somebody sells drugs to a user is not responsible for that user overdosing on those drugs if they do that it's difficult to bring a, a homicide charge or, or you know anything of that nature but when you're dealing with fentanyl which is so deadly um, and if especially if that drug is being sold to users without you know without them being aware that it's in there I mean this is this is evolving law right and it seems like New York is trying to deal with that it, it absolutely is evolving law and law you know, doesn't change or evolve very quickly, generally speaking. Um, but, um, and when it does, it's usually pretty flawed. <laughs> but um, there we had a, there was a case in Riverhead where it was um, heroin laced with fentanyl that right. caused a man's death. And they prosecuted the dealer, another Riverhead man, um, who they made the case that, you know, he knew or, you know, had reason to know. They actually brought charges against three people, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they ended up, I think, pleading out. But um, but they, they the district attorney hailed it as, you know, one of the first times that they were holding dealers responsible for the death of deaths of a death of a user. Um, but, um, you know, obviously it's a serious thing. It's puzzling to me that it, they laced cocaine with fentanyl. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a fairly common thing, um, but deadly in, in heroin. But um, I don't recall ever hearing of cocaine. That's not something users of cocaine would ever be uh, expecting to do. And I think, you know, props to the various um, entities that have done Narcan trainings and made Narcan kits available to people. Um, so you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, Denise, because I've even heard reports of marijuana laced with fentanyl and people being unaware that they were smoking marijuana with fentanyl involved. So um, I, I don't really understand that either. I've always been sort of curious about that, why mm -hmm. drug dealers would, would add, but I, I think that's, um, I, it's fascinating to me that, that the law really has to race to catch up now uh, with mm -hmm. the impact that fentanyl is having on, on all of the illegal drug trade. So. Well, I read I read something just to the point about about the cocaine. And, and I think Denise is right. It's two opposite effects. You, you've got the opioid, um, you know, from the fentanyl and, and cocaine is a completely different drug. But something I read was was saying that that these dealers cut the cocaine so much with with additives to kind of expand, you know, the, the amount of their product that it, it, it becomes ineffective as, as a drug being cut so much. So they add the fentanyl in just so that there's some kind of high that that people mm. get with it. But I mean, we, we mentioned it before, too. It, people who are, are using cocaine, they're overdosing. People aren't going to think that that it's an opioid overdose to, to use the Narcan to, to try That's to help right. them. It's really scary stuff out there. Well, one thing that was sort of interesting that I, I didn't I didn't know about this until um, this came up um, as we're you know uh, reporting the story with the on the fentanyl. So what they found when they were doing um, kind of you know the testing of the of the drugs, it wasn't actually fentanyl itself, but what they called an, an analog of fentanyl. So it's basically like um, chemically just slightly altered from what fentanyl actually is. So it's not 
actually fentanyl, but I think they called it like fluoro fentanyl, something like that. And um, it, it's a way sort of, I guess, the, the drug dealers can maybe kind of hide um, fentanyl itself. And it's a little possibly a little harder to, to detect. And um, so I, I, I didn't really know anything about that. So I thought that was pretty interesting the way they were kind of describing that. And, and the judge even made reference to the fact that reading the indictment, he didn't see the words fentanyl and he, and he thought that was kind of, kind of odd. So, um, you know, it's kind of this whole other layer now where, you know, you have, I guess, these analogs of fentanyl that are, can be just as deadly and um, uh, potentially harder to detect and trace. Don't, don't, do drugs, don't do drugs, kids. Yeah, exactly. yeah that's the lesson. That and is really law is. enforcement is dealing with the, the fallout of the new world of, of drug abuse. No question. Uh, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Jamie Buffalino from the East Hampton Star, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Um, so let's talk about uh, the East Hampton Airport, Jamie. The, there was a report this week that East Hampton Town received and there's sort of at a key moment um, this year, looking at the future of East Hampton Airport. And for the very first time in a long time, there's a real serious conversation about whether the airport might close uh, because of all of the negative impacts that it has on the community. And there's a whole argument uh, on the economic side to keep it open. Um, But uh, those hearings have now gotten underway. And And the town board got a report this week about what would happen if the airport would close as far as air traffic. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the key issues about uh, the possibility of closing East Hampton uh, Airport is that what happens to uh, Montauk and other surrounding airports, because, you know, if people are are going to fly here anyway, you don't want to just take the problem that exists one place and shove it on another town. So, and that is a major concern uh, for people who live in Montauk, obviously, because they would be inundated with uh, planes potentially. So um, it's, there's a lot of different issues that uh, are involved here and, it really is a question of like priorities, like how you want to use that space um, and whether, you know, you want to fully close the airport or keep it partially open or, you know, it's going to, there's going to still take, it's going to, they've been studying this for a while and it's going to take a lot more time to figure out all the ramifications of uh, each choice. What I thought was interesting, Jamie, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the report said basically that Montauk Airport, which is a much smaller airport uh, than East Hampton, would get a lot of that traffic. But there, there was also would, feeling would get that the, mostly the helicopter traffic. Would mostly the, helicopters, the bigger yeah. planes wouldn't be able to land them. Whereas Gabreski Airport in West Hampton might get some of the planes and the heliport in Southampton Village, which is a just just a heliport. Uh, located, you know, out there on, on, I think it's Meadow Lane, um, on a two-lane road uh, on the outskirts of the village right along the water, uh, might get a lot more traffic as well. But but sort of buried within the conversation is, you know, there's also this possibility of seaplanes and, and other places where this air traffic may go that's not to traditional airports. It may end up in places like 
Sag Harbor because seaplanes may start to right. land nearby in Sag Harbor. And there's even talk, I know that um, our Michael Wright has written about, Miami has actually created some floating helipads. Uh, they've allowed that for some um, houses to have their own helipads floating, you know, on on various bodies of water. That's not something I think that's that can be done here at the moment. But the question is whether some of that air traffic, if the airport were to close, the question is, is it shut off the, the hose and all the traffic just ends or does it just burst the hose and it goes all over the place? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really uh, is. a there's a lot involved. And like you said, it involved, it's not just about the parcel in East Hampton. It's about every other surrounding town and how they're affected. You know? What are some of the conversations about what the airport property might be used for if it's not an airport? I mean, partially it could be open space or recreation. Also, um, people have been talked about affordable housing, which is obviously a great need out here. I mean, it's a lot of acres. I'm forgetting the exact number right now, but it's a big uh, plot of land. So there are plenty of things that could happen there that would benefit a lot of people. Um, also- and the argument, you know, the economic, you were saying that the, there was an economic argument for it, keeping the airport, but the, the study that they had, that the town presented, uh, said that only like 1% of the people who live here use the airport, mm-hmm. you know? And concluded that they would come even if it closed. (laughs) Which, Bill, I think one of the things we wrote about was that there was also the conversation about that might push even more traffic back onto the roads. Um, Whether or not people are taking the the aircraft to different airports, they would still need to drive from those airports to their final destinations. But then a lot of people might just go back to coming out by via the roads. And there's only so much. And and a combination of that, too. What I thought was really interesting from the report this week was was it it noted that Montauk wouldn't be a viable option for a lot of uh, people using the airport because they they are going to destinations west of the airport in in Southampton. Um, so, so imagine, you know, so, so they might choose Gabreski instead of East Hampton airport, but then they come into Gabreski and they want to get to, you know, to Southampton village or, or, or watermill. Um, they're, they're then in the middle of the trade parade traffic. I mean, because they, how are they going to get there unless you take a plane into West Hampton and hop on a, a helicopter, maybe in a Southampton helipad or, or, or whatever. But I thought that was interesting too. So, so whatever you do, you, you're going to have that West to East traffic. Um, I, I think in, in Montauk, you've got, you know, you've got a lot of traffic too. People are, are going there, but yeah, I, I, I think it, it's, it, it's certainly a, a convenience, um, you know, to, to fly in into East Hampton airport, um, to, but I, I think mostly it's it's to avoid a lot of that traffic. It's certainly to avoid a long a long drive from from New York. But I think people would do that anyway. They would hire car services or whatever and, and sit in traffic. But does it make air quotes the Hamptons less attractive if if they don't have that option to to fly into East Hampton and you know and catch a quick ride to to where they're staying? It's an interesting question. I also feel like before we leave the topic, we have to give a behind the headlines tone deaf of the week award <laughs> to the aviation community at East Hampton Airport, which planned a just plain fun event. 
plane on P- Saturday, E-L-A-N-E. E-L-A-N-E on Saturday, September 11th, which uh, apparently was the only date available to do it, but just seems like a bad idea to have it on that day. But And, and uh, they are they are planning some 9-11 remembrance um, activities uh, during during that day, just just to be uh, just to be fair. Words matter. That's all. Um, so, um, Denise, I want to move to Riverhead. You know, I've driven out the main road on the North Fork and just outside of Riverhead. You see that store along the right hand side of the road with the big picture windows with puppies frolicking in it. Um, there's some legislation now targeting uh, that place and, and other places like it. Well, the argument is that they're, they source their, their stock from puppy mills, okay. brokers that deal with puppy mm-hmm. mills. They don't breed their, um, the, the puppies there. Um, it's a pet store. They sell puppies. Um, and um, the town board in Riverhead uh, had a public hearing on Wednesday that um, on, on a piece of legislation that would ban the sale of commercially bred dogs, cats, and rabbits in, at, at Riverhead Pet Stores. Um, and um, it was, uh, the, the, the hearing was interesting. I mean, I covered the hearings that the county legislature had a few years back, and um, I was wondering if it was going to be anything like that. Uh, those were pretty crazy in terms of the number of people that came and the things that were said and the emotions that ran so high. Um, so it was uh, occasionally emotional, but um, there weren't nearly as many people and um, it wasn't nearly as crazy. So uh, the hearing was um, closed except for public comments until I think the 20th. And um, uh, we'll see what the town board does. This was something that was uh, put forward by Councilman uh, Ken Rothwell and um, had some pushback along the way from the supervisor who was trying to postpone having the hearing, um, but then decided to uh, agree to go ahead with it. And um, people spoke about, you know, the horrors and we wrote about it, the horrors of these uh, so-called puppy mill uh, facilities where, um, you know, just hundreds of dogs are kept in um, what they describe as horrific circumstances and uh, when you look at the photos and the videos of some of these places, uh, you can't, there's no arguing with that. Um, uh, do, you the, get a, the, do you get a feeling, Denise, that the legislation's got enough support on the town board? I do, yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, was, I, was, I, there, what, was there any, any opposition to the bill? Did the, did the, there was, um, there's a, pet, a lobbying, pet store there's owners. A lobbying, there's a lobbying group uh, that comprises largely of pet store owners hmm. called uh, Puppy. It's uh, people for the uh, integrity uh, of pets. And uh, the acronym uh, exactly escapes me how that's spelled out, but. That was carefully crafted name to arrive at the mm-hmm. P-U-P-P-I acronym. Um, so there was a lawyer there for that group. And then there was um, the owner of the puppy experience uh, was there uh, protesting this, um, you know, this law. Um, I mean, it, you know, the case that they make is that they don't source their puppies from puppy mills that they source from reputable breeders and, you know, the opponents say no reputable breeder sells to a pet store. Reputable breeders want to deal with the families that are adopting or, not, or buying the, the dogs. Um, they, and that's not what happens with dog, dogs that are that are uh, sold to pet stores. 
Um, they make the argument that there are lots of pet stores, as we know, that don't sell animals and that they don't need to sell animals. And, you know, the owner of Puppy Experience said, you know, that they should adopt them from a rescue. And the owner of Puppy Experience got up and said, well, you know, believe it or not, some people have little kids and they don't want a pit bull. They want a cute dog. Mm-hmm. And um, there's plenty as, of dogs available to shelters of all. As, as, a, as a former a grandmother of a pit bull who has mm. passed away, but um, I can say that she was the sweetest, cutest dog anybody would have ever wanted. No. And uh, they get such a terrible, terrible reputation because of irresponsible breeders who breed them for the wrong reasons, honestly. But anyway. But, but, um, look, so, so I've always adopted my dogs from the shelter and been super happy with them and, and all that. But but I, I think there is a point there that, that 90, I don't want to give a percentage, a large percentage of yep. the dogs in the shelters right now are, are pit bulls and pit mixes um, just because they're so prevalent out here. And, and those are the ones out um, you know, mating and, and, and all that. And so, so, I mean, if, if people, I'm really torn by it because I, I hate to see any animal um, abused or in bad, can, you know, bad conditions, but if people do want a purebred Labrador or a purebred poodle or a purebred something else, then, you know, then, then they should have that option to find that, I guess, from, and, and, you know, I, I think from, from breeders rather than, than, than puppy mills and maybe not puppy stores, but. Um, well, the councilman that introduced this bill um, explained at some length when he introduced it, that what he, how he adopted recently adopted a purebred dog, found the breeder on the internet and the steps that he took. And it was a lot of homework really to actually research the breeder and visit the breeder and, you know, to ensure that it was a, a good breeder and not a puppy mill operator. And, um, you know, it's an emotional topic. There's sure. no question on both sides. A lot of emotions for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're out of time. Uh, wow. I want to thank our panelists today. Jamie Buffalino from the East Hampton Star. Thanks, Jamie. Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Uh, and of course, my co-host, Bill Sutton. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. We'll be back next week. Thank you all, guys. Great show, guys. Thanks. Thank you.